0: I don't know who that person is. It is good to be with you. There are eight words in a verse that we're going to look at today. Colossians 4.2. Where Paul just writes, devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful. And thankful. It's interesting that when we devote ourselves to prayer, that watchfulness and thankfulness kind of follows along. Uh, watchfulness. Uh, we often miss things because we're distracted, but prayer helps us to focus on that which is most important. That's being watchful. Uh, Thankfulness. Uh, We even have a holiday that helps us with that. What do you grumble about? Uh, Maybe here you grumble about the rain. We get six to eight inches in Phoenix a year. We'll take some of your rain. <laughs> or you might uh, complain about gas prices. We, we need to be thankful that we have vehicles to put gas in. So, I, you know, I, I really think that you and I could make an impact on the world just by being watchful and thankful, but recognize that that comes by devoting ourselves to prayer. Uh, I'm going to describe six chairs of prayer uh, for you, and you can determine which chair you sit in. We can move up and down this row of chairs, uh, but the idea is that eventually we work up. So in our what chair we sit in is determined by our attitude towards prayer. Uh, chair number one. Uh, my attitude towards prayer is it's not important. So as a result of that, my prayer life is zero. I just don't pray. Why, why would I do something that I don't think is important? That's chair number one. Chair number two, my atti- attitude towards prayer is that it's optional. I can take it or leave it. And most of the times I leave it. But that only produces frustration and inconsistency in my life. And uh, it's not a pleasant place to sit in chair two. Chair three, I go to thinking that prayer is important, but I make it all about me and what God can do for me and what others can do for me. And so I've made prayer a very self-centered, self-serving activity. Chair three. Chair four, I go from thinking prayer is important to thinking prayer is necessary that with it we live, without it we're just going to die spiritually. And I start to combine prayer with other things like God's Word, praying God's Word, and journaling, and et cetera. And I get to the point where I think I can't live without prayer. That's chair four. Chair five, uh, my attitude towards prayer is that it's critical. Much different than just being necessary. And in chair five, I'm starting to take on this ministry of intercession where I believe it's part of God's plan for me to pray for other people. That's chair five. Chair six, I join with other intercessors uh, who think that prayer is critical. And we pray over a church or a campus or Uh, Community. And we start to see that we have this incredible God who just can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. So I'm not sure which chair you reside in uh, this morning, but my challenge to you today is that you would at least move up a chair. And we start that by changing our attitude towards prayer. This morning we'll take a look at the prayer life of Jesus and then the prayer life of an individual Christian and then the prayer life of a congregation. What do we do as a church with this thing called prayer? Well, Jesus prayed. And he prayed a lot. We find in a few places that it was evidence that he was a a person of prayer, a man of prayer. Luke 11, in the first verse, there's an outline on a chair beside you, if you don't have one. Uh, you can follow along and tell when I'm almost done. But in Luke 11, 1, the disciples came to Jesus with a request. And they've seen Jesus do a bunch of things. You know, at this point, a couple years into his ministry, uh, they've seen him heal. They've seen him teach. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him have discourses with the religious leaders. But the request that's recorded in Scripture for us is not, Lord, teach us how to teach or teach us how to do miracles. It's, Lord, teach us how to pray. His prayer life really made an impact on the disciples. Uh, they'd wake up in the morning, and we find this in various places. And Jesus would be out praying. In in Mark, the first chapter, uh, Mark tells us that he rose early to pray, and and the disciples would have to go find him. <laughs> we find in Luke five. In verse 16, he often withdrew to lonely places just to pray, just to pray. And he'd he'd do it like after feeding thousands of people. He'd just go up in the mountains to pray. And he'd leave his disciples with the people. And uh, so he often withdrew just to lonely places to pray. Luke 6, we find that he would spend sometimes the whole night praying. It seemed like whenever he had something significant the next day, he would often spend the night praying. Uh, Here, he was appointing the 12 apostles the next day. He spent the night praying. The night before he was crucified, he spent the night praying. Why did Jesus need to pray? Well, he needed to demonstrate a dependence upon God. Uh, He could have easily come and been very independent of his father and just did his own thing. Uh, Also, he needed to seek God's will, not his own. And you you, you remember in the garden the night before he was crucified, he said, God, take this, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will your will. Wow. Have, have we ever prayed that? God, just not my will, but your will. So that was the prayer life of Jesus. Made a difference. How about the prayer life of an individual Christian? We, we often see prayers just an activity. It's something we do. And we don't often think of the change that God's trying to create within us by spending time with Him in prayer. Often, the number one reason I receive why people don't spend more time in prayer is they're too busy. If we're too busy to pray, we're probably just too busy. God God did not call us to busyness. God called us to faithfulness. We need to remember that. Uh, The typical Christian in our culture spends three to four minutes a day in prayer. And 92% of that is in casual prayer, like God, thank you for this food, or Christ's prayer, God, I'm in deep trouble. Help me now. Only about 8% of our prayer lives is spent in building a love relationship with Jesus. Why do we need to pray? Well, we... We need to have the right attitude. We need to live a dependent life upon Jesus, and it's very easy for us to be independent, to maybe be prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something, and then go do something different. Uh, we need to know and do God's will, and He gives us that opportunity to know His will. We we just need to pay attention. Prayer a weapon. Prayerlessness is what Satan wants to nudge all of us towards because he knows when we pray, he loses. When we don't pray, he wins. So prayer is a weapon. We need to remember that. Listen to what Michael Green said in his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. Michael writes this, If we attempt to do things for God without prayer, He cannot afford the risk of allowing us to succeed for we would become hardened in our conviction that activism, not prayer, is the way for the Christian to live. You catch that? God cannot afford us to succeed without prayer because then we become self-dependent. Well, how about prayer in the church? What What do we do with this this privilege called prayer. Well, first prayer needs to be taught to be childlike. We we need to be so dependent upon God that we pray with childlike faith. And it doesn't matter what we're asking God. God is capable of doing anything and all things. But we need to pray with childlike faith. Probably one of the best examples I heard of this Uh, a friend one day Barney uh, contacted me and said hey you got to hear this story and it was a story about Ken Gobb G-A-U-B. Ken is a minister in the state of Washington has a radio program and he was on vacation with his family uh, one summer and they were driving down Interstate 75 in into Dayton, Ohio. They had two motorhomes. And the family told Ken, uh, hey, Dad, it's time to get something to eat. So he pulls off the expressway in Dayton, Ohio, pulls into a restaurant parking lot, has a little bit of a troubled spirit going on inside, doesn't know what God's trying to communicate to him. So he sends his family into the restaurant, and he said, I'll be there later. He's sitting in the motorhome, looks across the street and sees a Dairy Queen and thinks that's part of God's plan. So he walks across the street, gets a Dairy Queen. He's walking back to the motorhome. He passes this garage that's working on vehicles and there's a, a public telephone booth out front and the phone is ringing and ringing and ringing and no one from the garage is answering it. So he just thought, I'll answer it. So he picks up the phone and says, hello. The operator says, I'm looking for Ken Gob. I have a person-to-person call for him. Is he there? Ken's blown away. He can't believe that he'd get a person-to-person call on a public telephone. And he's stammering and stuttering. And finally, the lady, who's calling from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, tells the operator, that's him. I recognize his voice. Let me speak to him. And the operator connects him. The lady tells Ken, "Uh, oh, Mr. Gobb, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you. I've been contemplating suicide all day today. And I told God, God, if you really want to help me, let me speak to Ken Gobb. I didn't know what state you lived in. I didn't know your telephone number in your office. And so I asked, and God gave me 10 digits. I wrote them down. I dialed the number, and I got your office on the first call. He said, lady, you don't understand. I'm 2,000 miles away from home, walking by a pay public telephone booth in Dayton, Ohio. The phone rings, I pick it up, and it's you. Ken had an opportunity to help that lady that day. When uh, Barney first told me that story, I thought, that's not true. (laughs) You and I know sometimes Christians make up stories just to make God look good. So, I committed I'd never share that story until I could find out if it was true. Uh, I asked God for 10 digits to give me to Ken and I never got him. (laughs) So, after a while, I just gave up. I was taking my son to basketball camp when we were still living in Michigan, and we went to Niles, Michigan, which is the very southeast corner of the state Uh, they were having their basketball camp at a particular location at uh, this big church and uh, so as i pull into the driveway to drop my son off i checked the marquee and on the marquee it said ken gobb speaking here sunday I didn't know how many Ken Gobs there are in the world, but I thought this guy might know the one I'm looking for. (laughs) So I couldn't be in Niles that weekend. I had to be someplace else. So I contacted Alan and Linda, two friends of mine. And I said, hey, I I need your help. Could you give me a hand? I told them the story about Ken Gob. I said, "I, I don't know if that's true or not. I doubt if it is. But there's a Ken Gob speaking at this particular church in your city. I know you don't attend there. Would you just go there Sunday morning and ask Ken Gobb if that story is true? They said, sure. We'd like to know if it's true, too. So they got there early, uh, walked into the building, and an usher came up to him and asked, can I help you? And they said, we'd like to speak to Ken Gobb. And he says, "He's over at his book table at the moment. Uh, No one else is there. Just go talk to him. So they walked up to him. They said, Mr. Gobb, Our names are Alan and Linda. We have this friend, Dean Troon, who's heard about Dayton, Ohio, and something God did supernaturally there with you. And so they told him what the story was. And at the end they said, Dean just wants to know if that's true. Ken picked up a book off his table and said not only is that story true, it's the first chapter in my book that's just been published entitled God's Got Your Number, and he gave him a copy of the book to give to me, and I still have it. I won't give it away. Listen, if a lady from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania can pray with childlike faith, asking God to connect her with a person she's never met before by phone, and he's 2,000 miles away from home, you and I can pray with childlike faith, and our God will move. We just need to give them an opportunity to do that. Uh, Next, prayer must follow the pattern of the first century church. Obviously, we get a good look at the first century church in the book of Acts. We uh, take communion each week here. You do. I do at my home church. Uh, That comes from Acts 20 and verse 7. Now, obviously, what Jesus said about communion is, is written in other parts of the New Testament, but the first century church, the only reference we get for them taking communion is Acts 20 and verse 7. How about the pattern of the first century church where the church came together just to pray, not to hear someone speak, not necessarily worship, but just to pray. You might ask, is that a pattern? <laughs> yeah, if it wasn't, I wouldn't have said it. Uh, Acts, the first chapter in verse 14, the church came together to pray. Acts 2.42, Acts 3, one, Acts 4.24, Acts 12.12, 12, Acts 13.3, and Acts 20. In verse 36, the church came together to pray. Maybe that's why in the first century, the whole known world heard about Jesus, because the church prayed. Our days must be bathed in prayer. How many days do you get up and just think, "Bye." I wonder how God's going to move supernaturally in my life today. That, that ought to be our first thought. Because our God wants to move supernaturally every day we live. Just every day. I was on a flight from Detroit to uh, Orlando. Uh, A few years ago and I just prayed uh, God uh, just I I just want to be used by you today so I got on the plane in Detroit I I was upgraded to first class which that happens sometimes and uh, I sat in 3B Uh, the plane filled up first class coach every seat was taken except 3a and i'm thinking god don't you have someone for me to talk to (laughs) on this two and a half three hour flight to orlando they're about ready to close the doors and an employee of that airline uh hops on the plane comes running down the aisle and sets in 3A. And so I figured, uh, she's my divine appointment for the day. So we talked back and forth. And uh, I asked her, uh, what can I pray for you? And she wanted me to pray for a relative that was not doing well. And uh, I said I would. Uh, the food came out. And I thought, I don't have anything to lose here. So they put a tray in front of her, and they put a tray in front of me. And I just said, hey, let's pray for our food. I took her hand, and I prayed for our food. And then uh, as we get closer and closer to Orlando, she tells me this story. Uh, My husband, who... (laughs) Went to Orlando last night. I'm an employee of the airline, and so we, we had passes to fly. We live in California. We came into Detroit last night. They only had one seat available on the last flight to Orlando. So I put my husband on it, and he some relatives picked him up. He's going to meet me at the airport. Uh, I tried to get on the first flight to Orlando this morning and there were no empty seats. And then on this flight, there was only one open seat. And it was next to you. I'm thinking about this time. Wow, God, you went to a great deal of trouble to put this woman next to me. She said... Uh, I know I need I I know I need to be a Christian I know better than how I've been living and I really believe that God put you in my path today to get me back to him so thank you and I'm thinking God this was all you I could have picked a hundred passengers and no one would have ever said that But you see, unless we're lifting up our days in prayer, we just don't know what God's gonna do. We need to be ready for whatever God wants to do. Prayer must be used in counseling or giving advice. How many times do we have people come and ask us for advice, and if we give them our advice, we've shortchanged them? We need to give them God's advice. If they're violating scriptural principles in their lives, then we need to address that. If if they don't know truth, we need to share truth with them. But to give people our advice, that's not biblically based. It doesn't accomplish anything. I have a dear friend away several years ago. His name was Al Hamilton. Some of you might have met him at one time or another. He was a missionary, and... He'd come back to the States for a while and then go back on the mission field. I was doing campus ministry in the early 90s uh, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, Al and his family moved there, and we became acquainted and became good friends. He shared a story with me that had taken place 15 years before. He said, you're not going to believe this. I said, try me. He said, okay. Uh, about 15 years ago I was between mission fields so I came back to the US didn't know where God wanted to send me and my wife and kids next so I took a interim ministry position at a little church in Georgia and I was going to be their pastor till they could find someone to come and minister long term he said I was there two weeks and I was in my office one morning getting ready to go run some errands. And the, the young man who played the piano for us, our worship services, walked into my office and said, uh, Al, I need to speak to you. And, he sa- and Al said, well, I told him I was getting ready to leave to run some errands. So I invited him to ride with me in the car. So they're driving down the road, this young man... Uh, turns to Al and says, "Okay, I want you to be aware of this. I've decided to commit suicide. This is the day I'm going to do it, and this is how I'm going to do it." Al talked to him for two hours and could not convince him that that was wrong. So Al sending off these flare prayers to God. You know what they are? They're short, to the point. God, I need an answer now. God, God, give me an answer for this guy. So God did. This was back when Idi Amin was still a dictator in Uganda. Al said, listen, you want to end your life, right? Young man said, yep, this is the day I'm going to do it, and this is how I'm going to do it. Al said, why don't we do it in such a way where God gets the credit? Young man said, what do you mean? Al said, well, every time we get someone to the border of Uganda and load them up with Bibles, we send them into Uganda to pass them out, they get shot on sight. We can get you to the border of Uganda. We'll load you up with Bibles. We'll send you into Uganda and assures the world you're going to get shot. And you're going to get what you want, but God's really going to look good. Young man said, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) Al said, no, I can guarantee it'll happen. Finally, true story, finally the young man said, I'll do it. They got him to the border of Uganda. They loaded him up with Bibles. They sent him into Uganda. He passed them all out and came back out and told Al, it didn't work. (laughs) Al, in his wisdom, said, let's try it one more time. So they loaded him up with Bibles. They sent him into Uganda. He passed them all, and he came back out. And this time he said, Al, I no longer want to die because I found a reason to live. That's God's fingerprints all over it. If Al was giving him his advice, that never would have happened. We must be led by the Spirit when we respond to people's requests. Otherwise, we're going to miss God moving supernaturally. Our leadership needs to be bathed in prayer. I cannot tell you the number of times I'm talking to someone on the phone coaching and they're saying, oh, we made this decision as a church and wow, it, it just seems like the leadership is getting bombarded with all kinds of stuff. It's called spiritual warfare. When When we decide to do something good for God, Satan doesn't like it. And... That, that's why we need to be prayed for. We we need to pray over communities and congregations and campuses. Uh, Bonnie and I, when we started doing ministry, uh, the impact ministry, and I was traveling, uh, we just decided we're not going to do ministry without prayer support. So we made an announcement in our newsletter that... Uh, we were looking for Moses' people. Moses, this comes out of Exodus 17, where Moses is on, his, on the hill with his hands in the air praying for Joshua in the valley who's fighting. And the scripture is very clear. Joshua did not win because of Joshua. Joshua won because Moses was up on the hill praying for him. And so we started a team called the Moses people uh, while wow, back in... Um, <laughs> must have been late 90s. We still have a Moses people team today. There are 55, 60 people that are praying for this trip because I sent out prayer requests on Thursday, the day before I left. And uh, we just won't do ministry without prayer support. And if our Moses people go away and we can't find anybody else to pray for us, we're done. We're just done. I see God do things that are beyond my capabilities, and I'm sure you do too, but we have a God who wants to show up supernaturally. And the question is, will we let him? Will we let him? Uh, One of the things um, that reminds me of of just having prayer support, uh, Paul Walker is an evangelist out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, He was out doing a conference, flying back into Atlanta, and he was uh, in first class, uh, sitting next to a lady, and they had some small talk. Uh, The food came out. Uh, This was when they still offered food. And uh, he took it, and she rejected it. And so he's eating, and he turns to her and asks, Oh, are you a Christian today? And are you fasting, kind of tongue-in-cheek? And she says, no. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. And all the covens around Atlanta, Georgia, are praying and fasting today for Satan to destroy the lives, the marriages, and the ministries of Charles Stanley and Paul Walker. He didn't tell her he was Paul Walker. I would have. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> If that is how intentional Satan is in destroying the lives, the marriages, and the ministries of people who are Christian leaders, we ought to be just as intentional in praying for them. Amen. Just as intentional. Because it's war. And remember, prayer's a weapon. Our neighborhoods need to be bathed in prayer. Uh, when Bonnie and I moved to Phoenix... Uh, from Michigan seven years ago the only thing we prayed is God put us in the middle of a mission field and uh, our daughter and daughter-in-law found our house for us and uh, said this is the house you ought to buy and uh, so we put a bid on it without even being in Phoenix and it was accepted and so before the Inspection period ended, I got on an airplane and went to Phoenix to see the house we purchased. Uh, We did not pick our subdivision. We believe God did. I I know the pandemic was hard for many people, and uh, I feel bad about that. The pandemic was awesome for me because I stopped traveling and I started prayer walking my neighborhood every day. I don't think I missed the day I was home uh, for over a period of two years. And still, when I'm not traveling, I'm, I'm walking our neighborhood. I have met more people. <laughs> oh, I've met some amazing people. There's a park a quarter mile south of our house that I walk in. I walk through our subdivision, the park, and then back. And I've just met all kinds of people. One year about Christmas, maybe three years ago, uh, during the pandemic, uh, I saw this gal walking her dog. And we just happened to come to the corner in the park at the same time. So we were right there together. And so I just started a conversation. Hey, what's your dog's name? She said, Zoe. I said, okay. So I thought, I'd I'd like to talk to her again. Three months went by and I never saw her again. And I thought, well, maybe she was just visiting here for the holidays. Uh, And so one morning I'm out walking and I see her. And I'm thinking, well, we're not going to let this go by. So I walk up to her and uh, I said, I have two questions for you. And she stopped. She had her dog, Zoe. And uh, I said, we've met before. We met down here at the corner uh, three months ago, and I asked you what your dog's name was. She said, oh, yeah, I remember. I said, okay, two questions. What's your first name? She said, Jennifer. I said, "Uh, Jennifer, I always look for something in people's lives I could pray about. What can I pray for you? No hesitation. She said, I'm engaged to a guy that I'm... I'm struggling with the relationship. Oh, I mean, we went from not knowing one another to being acquainted quickly. I said, "What's his name?" She said, "Mike." Okay. Uh, I'm committed to pray for you and Mike. She said, "Thank you. I appreciate it." I then I started running into her often, and. Uh, I'd remind her every once in a while, I'm praying for you and Mike. So, oh, thank you, thank you. About that time, Bonnie and I decided to start a discovery group where uh, people come together on Zoom or in person. And you just answer seven questions about a pas- uh, concerning a passage. And it's very straightforward. No one leads it. No one's a teacher. But you have a facilitator. It's a great, it's a great opportunity. So as Bonnie and I were starting that, we thought, hey, I wonder if Jennifer, this gal I met in the park, would be interested. But <laughs> I don't know where she lives. So next time I ran into Jennifer, I gave her a card that had discovery groups on it, their description, and then the seven questions we use. And she said, I'm going to be a part of it. So she became a part of our group. And I thought, well, she ought to meet Bonnie, so we got together on a Zoom call one day. And she ended up bringing other people to our discovery group that I had never met. She was with us for a year and a half, finally married Mike and moved to Wales. And uh, I'm praying like the Dickens that God starts discovery groups in Wales, all over Wales, because of Jennifer. But you see, it was because... I was praying for our neighborhood, that that God just answered that prayer. Um, Out on the table, there's some books of mine, but also um, just a brochure on a prayer gathering. I'm taking a group of people into Springfield, Massachusetts to pray in August. Come in on a Friday, Saturday, leave on Sunday. You might say, why Springfield? Uh, It's a place that needs Jesus. George Barna's uh, survey in 2019 identified Springfield, Massachusetts as the most post-Christian city in our country. Few, the fewest people of any city they've ever surveyed in Springfield, the fewest, attend church. Less than 10%. I have some friends that are planning a church there. And they said, hey, how about if we have a prayer gathering? We'll just bring people in to pray for Springfield. We're going to do that next month. Join us. (laughs) It'll be fun. But see, our neighborhoods need to be bathed in prayer. Uh, Next, uh, fasting supercharges our prayers. We, We need to be people that not only are devoted to prayer, but devoted to fasting too. Uh, During the pandemic, I was exposed to some disciple-making movement principles. And one of them is, uh, don't settle for ordinary prayer and fasting. Aim for extraordinary prayer and fasting. So that's what I've been doing. One of the most encouraging stories I've ever heard about fasting, prayer and fasting, is from Derek Prince. Derek was a minister in England. And he ministered after World War II in England. He passed away in the 90s. And uh, after World War II, word was coming out of Russia that Stalin was going to perform the Russian purges, which means he was going to go in and slaughter the Jewish people in Russia. They didn't know what to do. So in February... Of 1953, Derek Prince and other pastors around England had a day of prayer and fasting that God would stop the Russian purges. So they, they spent one day, I think it was Thursday, uh, middle of the month, and they prayed that God wouldn't allow it to happen. Two weeks later, almost to the day, February or March 1, 1953. Stalin had a stroke on the 1st of March and died on the 3rd of March and the Russian purges never took place. The people in England were not praying for God to remove Stalin. They were just praying, God, don't let the Russian purges happen. And our God, our big God, answered that prayer with people not even being in Russia. He answered a prayer about Russia. I pray for Russia every day. No, I pray for a lot of countries every day, but Russia's one of them. Uh, We need to be willing. (laughs) We need to be willing to fast and pray for God to change this world. Uh, Eighth, prayer must be the basis of all we do. Whatever we do, let it be said that it's well prayed for. D Duke is a minister in the state of Oregon, in Jefferson, Oregon. He planted a church there in the 80s, and it grew to about 200 people in attendance and stayed there for seven years. Did not go above 200, did not go below. He felt he wasn't gifted by God to lead a church past 200, so he was about ready to resign. But before he resigned, he attended a prayer and fasting summit in the Northwest, which are more common there for whatever reason. He came back from the prayer summit and told his leaders, We're going to make prayer our number one priority. So they eliminated some programs and they just purposed, We're going to be a people that pray. And they picked a night in the week where the church comes together just to pray. After being at 200 for seven years, they went to 750 in their Sunday morning attendance in the next 18 months people would ask the Jefferson Baptist Church, what's your secret? And they'd say, we've made prayer number one priority. Last time I checked on the church, they were running 1,600 on Sunday mornings. You know how many people live in Jefferson, Oregon? 1,500. And they've started other campuses. They've simply made prayer their number one priority. D is going to be speaking at a conference in Phoenix in October, and I'll be speaking there also. I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> I've been telling his story for years. Listen, prayer must be our number one priority. At, down at the bottom of your the outline, there's a paragraph there. Follow with me if you would. When this church relentless. Devotes self to prayers God intends, then other people and other congregations in this community will want to pattern their lives and their congregations after you. Two questions. And they're answered yes or no. Will you be a person who's devoted to prayer? Colossians 4.2. That's just yes or no. But we don't answer that question with our lips. We answer that question with our lives. Second question, will you be the congregation that's devoted to prayer? Again, it's yes or no. And again, we don't answer that with our lips. We answer it with our lives. At the bottom of your outline, there's a I will. I, I love I will statements. Those are obedient statements that we use in discovery groups. We take a passage, we ask questions about it, and then the last question is, okay, based on this passage, what is God leading you to do? And put it in the form of a "I will" statement. I will be obedient in whatever." But here the question or the statement is, "I will follow God's lead in prayer. By. And then you fill in the blank. Uh, I want to take 30 seconds and just pray. And you ask the Holy Spirit, "What do you want me to apply?" from Colossians 4.2. And then I'll close this out with prayer. Please pray. God, you are a great and marvelous God. Your greatness we can't even fathom. Your power we can't even comprehend. You have simply asked us to be a people devoted to prayer. May we do that in obedience and maybe we move up chairs wherever we are in that line. God, we get one shot at being a people of prayer. Help us not to waste it. Uh, Father, I ask that you speak to each one of us here, individually, including myself, and just tell us how we can take our prayer and fasting to the next level. Help us to be courageous. Help us to keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. You are dismissed.